This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So I live in Houston. Yesterday when I got here, I thought it was actually hotter in Austin than it was in Houston. So uh, we have the bad reputation. You guys have the good reputation. <laughs> it's hotter here. This poem, this is an enlightenment poem of Dungshan. So Dungshan is the, one of the founders of Soto Zen, our school that we practice here. And this is his poem of enlightenment, one of his poems, one of his writings. And this poem I've been very taken with uh, lately, but I want to tell you first a little bit about Dongshan. He was always known as a very uh, bright practitioner in ancient China. Everybody admired him, and he wasn't reluctant to ask questions if he didn't understand something. So uh, he's famous for really trying to get to the heart of the matter. And one story that I want to tell is when he found it was time to leave his teacher, with whom he finally had a number of awakening experiences. So he's getting ready to leave the great teacher, Yunyan, and that was a significant thing to do in ancient China, because you might never see each other again. He would go off and travel uh, in China and in Japan, too. Um, Eventually you settle down, and then your name is the name of the mountain that you've settled down on. So the teacher and the mountain kind of merge. And you don't travel around so much after that, usually. Um, the only way you get to uh, hear about other teachers' teachings back then was to see their students arrive, see how the students comported themselves and talked. So you would assess your fellow practitioners by the behavior of their students. So uh, sometimes teachers would give their students a portrait of them to take with them as a, as a bond, because really you might never see those people again, traveling off into the wilds, different time. So Dengshan went to Yunyan, Yunyan to say his farewells, and then he asked uh, when people ask me about your reality, what should I tell them? And Dungshan said, just this is it. Excuse me. Yunyan said, just this is it. And then Dungshan was silent for a long time. And then Yunyan said to him, you must be very thoroughgoing. And then he took his leave, and he pondered. And as he was traveling, he, he didn't really understand what it meant, quite. He knew there was a little shred of not understanding, which is what we call doubt. When we have this little suspicion that we don't really understand, that's called doubt. Um, had that little bit, and then after a while, he walked across a stream and saw his reflection in the water and then he had his full, total awakening, his awakening to reality. So what I want to talk about is you must be very thoroughgoing. Dungshan refers to that exchange 
in many ways, but in this poem that we read, which is really clear and easy to understand, right? You just followed right along. There's a little narrative, and yeah, you got to the end, and you understood the part about um, practice secretly working within like a fool, like an idiot, right? <laughs> and just to continue in this way is called the host within the host. So we do take our practice out into the wor- world, and we don't uh, present it as our, we don't front it as, hey, I'm a practitioner, but we are practicing all the time. And that's part of what this refers to, working within, like a fool, like an idiot. Let people think of you what they will. You're practicing with it. But he refers to this exchange with Yinyan up at the beginning. The teaching of thusness has been intimately communicated. Now you have it, so keep it well. So that's one of the things that went back and forth with Dongshan uh, and Yunyan. Now you have it, so keep it well. You must be very thoroughgoing. And so, what is it to be thoroughgoing? Like, where are we thoroughgoing? And when do you think we should be thoroughgoing? It's like right here, right now. This is the only place to be thoroughgoing right now, right here. This is the site of waking up. But I want to tell you something more about uh, uh, Dungshan's path before he had this experience, before he realized that uh, just this is it. He'd started off just before Yunyan with another great teacher named Guishan. Guishan is one of my very favorite teachers. Very, very... um, dedicated, thoroughgoing teacher, and he wrote some of the first guidelines for how to behave in a monastery, but he just had great insight, great writer. And uh, Dungshan found his way to Guishan, and what was going around in the country at that time among Zen practitioners, it's like us, we get themes, and their theme, one of the themes that they were exploring in in, uh, in in the intensity of Zen practice was insentient beings teach the Dharma. It's not just humans who do this and either teach the Dharma or befuddle people, but the rocks, trees, tiles, pebbles, streams, stars, waterfalls are t- teaching Dharma. So that teaching was going around and a great teacher named Nanyang had been talking about it, who said, um, quoting the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra, the earth expounds Dharma, living beings expound it, throughout the three times, everyone expounds it. So, Dungshan, who's famous for asking about, asking for clarity, uh, went to Guishan to say, the great teacher Nanyang is saying that the earth expounds dharma. What does that mean? And Guishan raised his whisk, his fly whisk. This isn't a whisk, but he raised the thing that he had with him. And then he said to Dongshan, do you understand? And Dungshan said, no, I don't. <laughs> Very honest guy. And 
Guishan said, it can't be explained to you by someone born from a mother and father. You should go study with Yunyan. So he left. And I have pondered that phrase for a long time, thinking about, and when Mako and I were walking this morning along that Sloan Shoal Creek, it was amazing with those overhang, it's beautiful, overhanging limestone cliffs. It was a little like being in China. You should go there. That's like being in China. And, I mean, you, you go there. So, For me, it was breathtaking, and I thought, you know, are these limestone creeks, list, are these limestone cliffs listening to the Dharma being, being expounded by the bubbling water? Are the trees rustling and teaching Dharma to each other? Do they hear each other in a way that we can't communicate? Are they? How are they tolerating us? So, Yun Dongshan went to Yunyan at his teacher's instruction and told him about this exchange that he'd had. Now, I asked him about this teaching that the insentient rocks and trees and walls and tiles and pebbles are teaching Dharma. I don't understand. Can you help me? And Yunyan said, Dengshan said, why can't I hear it? Yunyan said, non-sentient beings are able to hear it. Then Dengshan asked the teacher, are you able to hear it? And Yunyan said, if I were able to hear it, you would not be able to hear me. And then, and we think there was no, I mean, they didn't have email back then, so he didn't know that the other teacher had raised his whisk. And then Yunyan raised his whisk. Do you hear it yet? And Dengshan said, no, I don't. And then Yunyan said, if you don't even hear me when I teach the Dharma, how will you hear the insentient teach the Dharma? So that caused Dengshan to think, I should stay here and study for a while. <laughs> so then he stayed with uh, Yunyan for a while. Yunyan quoted a Pure Land Sutra. He said, water birds, tree groves, all without exception, recite the Buddha's name, recite, recite the Dharma. And then Dungshan had a little glimpse, and he wrote this, this poem at that time. How marvelous, how marvelous, the Dharma expounded by non-sentient beings is inconceivable. Listening with your ears, no sound. Hearing with your eyes, you directly understand. So how to be thoroughgoing in this moment, this here and now? We were talking about a little bit earlier today that teachings adapt and they absorb new information. So we uh, have more information available to us to how to be present, or we use, or we need to hear it in different ways. And one of the ways we've been studying in Houston during our practice period, we just concluded a year-long practice period. We called it the practice period of daily life. And our Shusou was living in uh, California, and he would communicate by Zoom, and he would come to Houston. Practice period of daily life it was actually very powerful. 
And one of the things that we studied was um, the 59 slogans of mind training. So this was happening, this was popular, the 59 slogans to train the mind were popular as a Tibetan practice about the same time as Dogen Zenji. So for thousands of years, people have been working with this mind. And this uh, slogan that I really want to talk about, slogan number nine, Norman Fisher, who will be coming here soon, has a great commentary and translated this or commented on it as, turn things around. In this moment, practicing here, turn it around. See it differently. But the original uh, name or the, the original uh, description of this slogan is three objects, three poisons, three seeds of virtue. So in any moment of our experience, there are, according to this opportunity to train the mind, in any moment, there are three, there are only three objects. They are attractive, unattractive, or neutral. This is just a practice. There are three poisons in that moment. Greed, for the attractive object, um, hate or aversion for the unattractive, and then neutral or confusion for something that's either we don't know what it is or it's both attractive and unattractive. We both love it and hate it, so it's confusing. So that's a description of experience. There's only attractive, unattractive, and neutral. There's only the desire to get it, the desire to push it away, or the confused desire about it. But the three seeds of virtue are within each of, those mo each of those moments, there's the turning of it into liberation. That's where we wake up. I see it as attractive. If greed arises, I'm already ensnared, but it, there's virtue there to see it as it really is see my relationship to it as it really is, see it as just this is it, see it as suchness, see it as me, or see it as the teachings of the, of the Buddhas. So, but, um, mental arisings can also be um, destabilizing or disturbing and uh, when we set up situations where we practice together as a sangha to help us uh, navigate this territory, we have a good chance to use these moments. So after a while, it, it, uh, practicing secretly like a fool, like an idiot, we can proceed through these moments and actually use them and find the seed of virtue. But it, it, it is destabilizing and we end up floundering a lot. This is what practice is all about. But ultimately, we get something called resilience in this practice. We get resilient about our efforts. And a good description that I like is uh, of a surfer. The waves of our experience. It isn't meant to be just uh, motionless, frozen in space, 
we're meant to have a dynamic relationship, we do have a dynamic relationship with our experience, and we learn how um, we experience with our bodies the uh, leaning this way, knowing that now we're going to have to put our foot down to guide the board this way, knowing that we have to breathe into the situation and move that way. So we learn how we use all the uh, teachings of all the Buddhas and our friends to gain more and more resilience in our experience. There's lots of work being done these days about the, the most kinds of destabilizing experiences and traumatic events that surface when we're sitting in meditation. It happens. Memories of traumatic things ha- will emerge in meditation as you go on. If you go on long enough, everything will come up. And teachings like this are designed to help us navigate that territory and learn how to balance recognition of really, really difficult mind states with practices with our body and mind to balance. In the old, original teachings, now we use we can use modern teachings, but in the original teachings, it's also contained in the foundations of mindfulness. To be aware of, mindful of internal states, mindful of external states, mindful of both internal and external, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. So mindful of internal states is um, my breathing, my mind. Mindful of external states is your breathing, your minds, your postures. So that after a while, my mindfulness merges with your mindfulness, and it's all just our breath, our bodies, our hearing, our teaching. And modern psychology wants us to get us there too, but it's it's embedded in our teachings. So back to this raising of the uh, whisk. Did you get it? Laughing is good. You know, what, what's being raised up here? What's happening when this is raised up? The raising up of things as an ancient uh, pedigree in Zen teaching. Um, when the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, was teaching, he raised up a flower, we say. And the only person in the big assembly who smiled, oh, you smiled, that's good. <laughs> we got a smile. So at that moment, we say the first Dharma transmission happened, and Mahakashapa, Buddha said, Mahakashapa has the true Dharma eye. But it really concluded at midnight. So then there was another ceremony at midnight, which, congratulations on a midnight ceremony. So there was a raising up. And then teachers have raised up fists, they've, they've raised up staffs, they've raised up, what have they raised up? All sorts of stuff. Fingers. Eyebrows. Oh, fingers, that's the one I like. Eyebrows. 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 Yes, the fingers. Thank you, Tracy. So there was a, a teacher named Judy, we say, or Gyote. Uh, who had, unlike Dungshan, who maintained this little shred of uh, 
of doubt. You know, he really wanted to be certain. He really wanted to clear it completely. Um, Judy was pretty much there. He thought he really understood. He understood it so clearly that he removed himself to a hermitage in China. So he's living in a hermitage in the wilds. There he was. And then one evening or one late afternoon, a visitor arrived. And this visitor was Shurji. So when we chant the names of the women teachers during Sashin, one of the names of the uh, Chinese women that we chant is Shurji. This is her. So she uh, arrived in his hut and she paid him a great compliment. She didn't just like become casual and sit down. She, she had on her traveling straw hat. She had her staff. She was still dressed for traveling around to seek the Dharma. So she came in and she walked around him three, t- three times. And you see it in the sutras, you know, to show respect to Buddha, you circumambulate three times. And then she stood in front of him and said, if you can speak, I'll stay. And he said he couldn't, he didn't know, he didn't know what to say. So he said nothing. So she's saying, if you can speak the Dharma, basically, if you can say a word, I will stay. And he couldn't say anything. So she walked around him three more times and stood in front of him and said, if you can speak, I'll stay. She walked around him three more times. The third set, if, you'll, if you can say something, I'll stay. And then she turned to leave. And as she was getting ready to walk out the door, he said, please, don't go. It's dark outside. Stay the night, meaning take refuge here. It's not safe to walk around. In fact, it was so unsafe that it was uh, the Vinaya forbids women from walking around on pilgrimage by themselves. It's forbidden. It was unsafe then, it's unsafe now to walk around at night in, in a jungle. It wouldn't be a jungle in China. A forest would be unsafe. But she left. So for me, that's all it says in the story. But for me, I honor that awesome Dharma sister, so devoted to the Dharma and so devoted to him, to Judy, really wanted him to understand that this was significant. This wasn't just casual visit. So she left. And after she had gone, uh, who knows where she stayed, you know, under a tree or did she, where did she stay? We don't know. Um, after she left, though, he felt bad. He realized that he'd not passed the test. He was very remorseful, very regretful. And so he started to pack up his things to leave. He knew he couldn't just stay in his hermitage content with his understanding. He had to go and meet others, go back to the Sangha life, refine his understanding. But as he was getting ready to leave, the spirit of the mountain appeared to him and said, don't go. How would a mountain speak? The mountain was speaking the Dharma. Don't go. (laughs) A great bodhisattva is coming to see you. So he stayed, and he had faith. So ten days later, uh, Bodhisattva Tianlong showed up, and he just showed up. And but 
Judy knew this was the one he was supposed to wait for, so he greeted him and told him the story. This nun, Shirji, came and walked around. She paid her proper respects and said, if you can speak, I'll stay. And I couldn't say anything. And Tian Long just pointed at him. And Judy woke up. So from then on, he's famous for, um, people would say, tell us the Dharma. Just raise his finger. And he became well-known and effective with his teaching. Okay, now I'm going to tell you a disturbing story, so you might want to cover your ears. But uh, then, she's covering your ears. <laughs> I'm just warning you. Trigger warning. Um, after a while, word got back to Judy that there was a young servant boy, or maybe it was a young practitioner who helped him at, at the temple, different stories, say different things. He heard that in the, in the town, when people would ask this boy what Judy was teaching, the boy would raise his finger. So Judy went down into the town and found the boy and cut off his finger. And then as the boy was running away, screaming, Judy called to him to turn around and Judy pointed at him, and then the boy woke up. So we don't know if that happened. It's a very powerful story. But we do know that for these people, really understanding and uh, making it your own <coughs> is what they're trying to convey to us. I don't know if they're even trying to convey it to us. They were living it out, making it their own. There are more comments in this in the Song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi about this, but I'll just say a couple right now. The meaning is not in the words, yet it responds to the inquiring impulse. That's a thread through these stories. Here's another one. Move and you are trapped. Miss and you fall into doubt and vacillation. I love that. So our ancestors for me, they've left us with uh, many, many, many models and stories to encourage us. But right now, the one I'm really resonating with is the teaching of the insentient, the teaching of the trees and the waters and the oceans and the pebbles along the ocean floor. That's what I really want us to hear and for us to understand that though all of those are, are speaking to each other, whether we hear it or not, they're speaking. Thank you very much. Oh, do we have discussion now?
That's good. One thing I want to say about it too is that it says that he held up the whisk and basically he just held up whatever was in his hand. He just pulled it up out of reality and held it up. Yeah. Thanks. So in, in what you were relating to us um, about the teaching of the incentive, the, the, the question was, can you hear it? And it occurred to me that in the chant that we usually do uh, before the talks, one of the things that's, that I've always enjoyed was that it's not simply hearing, it's having it to see yeah. mm-hmm. and listen to. Seeing comes before listening. And I've got to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. So I think there's something in that as well. We can get fixated on one particular sense gate through which we're receiving this or accessing it. Um, but sometimes if we step aside from the usual, I need to hear it because it's going to be in words. And that can open up some things to us too, I think. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the hear with the eyes, I thought, is a, is a good kind of compliment versus comment. Learning how to see the Dharma rather than just hear it. And I'm a scholarly type, so I'm a bookish person, so sometimes words don't necessarily convey there's something in there. <laughs> it's how do I find it? Right. How, do I, how, do I, how do I access it? Right. Good, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last talk I heard of yours was here about the environment. Mm. And it seems like there's a common thing. Yeah. That they have something to say to us. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I tend to I really like the I really like trees and cliffs. I really like rocks a lot. Mm-hmm. They're very slow teachers. They're I guess they're my speed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, could you comment on the the section of the poem that talks about when arrow points meet? What does that have to do with the power of skill? When arrow points meet head on? Head on. What's that mean? Well, what do you think? What do you think the arrows are about? What's What's coming? Um, the, the only way I can think of it is uh, what does if you're if you're sitting or meditating, maybe skill is not helpful mm-hmm. necessarily. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something else that's more helpful than thinking of on developing skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really all I can. How would you think about it in a relational way, outside of just the self? Here I found it. Well, therefore meet each other. So a lot of this is about the meeting of Dongshan and, and his teacher. So it's not really just, it's, I don't know if any of it is about, um, I suppose we could find it, just a self. It's about 
the meeting of consciousness and its environment, which is seeing suchness, and it's, a, it's about what happens when those two met each other and realized suchness together. So that's as significant, I don't know if it's as rare, but it's as significant as arrow points meeting just like that. So when people are, when consciousnesses are in communion and resonating and realizing reality together, that's like arrow points meeting. And it, what has this to do with the power of skill? Dungshan is forever um, appreciate. He was very smart and scholarly. Yunyan, his teacher, that teacher, was not known for being smart. Reb Anderson often says that we are the lineage of very slow students. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Yunyan was not famous for being scholarly, but he was famous for his under, d- depth of understanding of uh, suchness, the way consciousness and reality resonate. So I think it's a description of that. When arrow points meet head on, what has this to do with the power of skill? And you're not puzzled by the next line. When the wooden man begins to sing, the stone woman gets up dancing. All right. It's not... (laughs) It's not with... Here's one. It's not within reach of feeling or discrimination. How could it admit of consideration and thought? Isn't that wonderful? It's not within reach of feeling or discrimination, yet it's always present. Is that good? Yeah, work with. Yes. Could the uh, just the gesture itself be significant in terms of like it's just the rising of something? It's just the like just this is it. This is the rising things. In your experience, like absolutely, just yeah. like with phenomena, all phenomena yeah. rising and ceasing, yeah, just coming into existence, and yeah, yeah. In fact, it's kind of a miracle that you guys have talked about absolute, ultimate reality and conventional reality. So, an ultimate reality is just a bunch of sensory data, and then something appears separated from that. So there are many ways to talk about it poetically. The hundred grasses, things are all merged in suchness, and yet things stand out. So, yeah, that's exactly. Something is standing out of suchness. One of the problems that long, long, long time meditators can face is all you see after that is, you know, a bliss realm. So most of us who choose to live in cities don't get that luxurious problem. <laughs> we have to remain mindful of stoplights and things like that. So, I just got a ticket for running a stop sign. <laughs> the policeman said, it looked like you didn't even see it. Do you come this way a lot? And I said, yes, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I guess I was in a bliss realm. <laughs> So I've always been fascinated by this um, finger finger chopping story. The what? The finger chopping story. Oh. No. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if if the teacher didn't point at the boy in, in that moment, um, or or if the teacher had pointed but also said something. Do you think it would have been appropriate if what was said was, "Now you have it, so keep it well." Once the boy understood. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. He could pass that on exactly. 
-hmm. And then the boy would uh, have a different way of demonstrating that thing. <laughs> do, you, do you think that the pain, the pain of having the finger removed is um, maybe representative of the pain that was felt when the boy realized that he was engaging in a sort of fake or misunderstood um, understanding of, of the Dharma. Oh, that's he good. Was just mm -hmm. simulating, simulating. That's good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in that case, probably the physical pain would be more tolerable than the regretful pain. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. This reminded me something of the when it says the teacher said, "Do not mistake the pointing the finger for the moon." Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really good. We should look at the timing of that to see if it has any relationship to Gyote. It probably does. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. And yet, the finger pointing at the moon is the same as the moon. It's all just... All one? I never say that. <laughs> I also say I never say it's all good but I just said it so. <laughs> don't say that it tortures me it tortures me <laughs> what can you say or can you say more about um, make the teaching your own make the teaching your own yes I mean I yes Especially for the, in the, like how people hear, how different people will hear that in different ways. I mm -hmm. wonder if there could be some clarification on the teaching of making one, making the teaching one's own. Thank you, that's really good. Um, I think that the way it, it's, it's made our own is our circumstances make it. And so our circumstances give us an opportunity and relieve us of any responsibility to come up with something novel. It's not like we have to come up with something novel, but it's going to be inevitable that even if we tried to embody it exactly like somebody else, our embodiment will be unique. So we make the teaching our own by being ourselves completely. And I don't know, that's way beyond the issue of whether you like or don't like a schedule, right? way beyond that. It's it's deep levels of being oneself. That makes sense? Yeah. Would that have some connection to the theme you were raising of being thoroughgoing in Nyan's teaching to Dhammashana? <coughs> Making something your own, finding your that unique expression that comes from the circumstances being a product of being thoroughgoing. Yes. Right. If you want to say anything more about being thoroughgoing, <laughs> if you have any thoughts on what that means, what that would look well, like. being very thoroughgoing in context, those were the last words he was saying to his beloved student that he may never see again in this life. So, in that context, uh, Think about how, how much he meant that. You must be very thoroughgoing. Not only will I never see you again, possibly, 
but you are taking my dharma. You are that was his only heir. You're taking it with you. You must be thoroughgoing in in the moment. In the moment. So this is beyond um, having a plan or an agenda. It's just imprinting on each of us that it's in this moment. This is the only time we have to wake up. This moment, this moment, this moment. Don't, I guess, he doesn't say it. It's the, our other ancestor who says, uh, don't waste time. This ancestor says, practice secretly, working within like a fool, like an idiot. I love that. To be so thoroughgoing that you don't, it doesn't matter what people think about you. You're just going to be thoroughgoing. And now you have it, so take care of it. Right. And now you have it, so keep it well. That's it. All the rest of these sentences, each one is really powerful. So, filling a silver bowl with snow, hiding a heron in the moonlight. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? Does everybody know what it means? One thing is, I just want to say, and then probably we should break, right? Okay, so raising this up, raising anything up, to see how anything really relates to the ground of reality is this snow and a silver bowl. It's like you can barely see the distinction between making something into a form and its real relationship to emptiness. So it's like snow and a silver bowl, like a heron in the moonlight, which we get to see. We in this land get to see a lot of herons in the street light. <laughs> but all of those images and the, the many images from, from the natural world are meant to focus us on these, these issues of reality. Anything else? Shall we go break? The Dharma air here. <laughs> Thank you all very much.